This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online at www.channelafrica.co.za. It has been a while, about a week, but it's good to be back. My name is Samora Mangesi. Driving the show with me, I have Ms. Onilensi, Tracy Boomgaard, and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour... South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says there have not been any major problems reported with regards to special votes. Venezuela's opposition leader, Juan Guaido, says he is considering asking the United States to intervene in the embattled South American country. In economics, Kenya Airways to resume flights uh, to the coastal town of Malindi from the 10th of June. And in sport, rising South African tennis star Lloyd Harris has reached a career high ranking of number 80. Seven. The day today is Tuesday the 7th of May, the day before a very important day in South Africa. Something very important is going to be happening. A lot of South Africans are going to be heading to the polls to decide who is going to be governing the country. I hope that you're going to be doing exactly that as well. But right now, it's almost time for us to cross on over to the news. But uh, someone I have not seen or heard from in a very long time, Ms. Anilensinsi, is here in the studio. Onele, welcome back. Thank you. How long have you been around? I've not Two been months, here for a week. I've, no, I've, I've only came back on Monday. You only came back yesterday. Uh, yesterday. yesterday yes. Well, welcome back. It's good to have you. Do people know where you were? I think so. All well, right. you know where I was. I know where you were. Thank you. And congratulations. <laughs> but right now, it's time for us to cross on over to Onele Nsinzi at the news desk. Here is your news bulletin. Thank you, Samara. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has urged all South Africans to exercise their democratic right and vote on Wednesday's elections. Ramaphosa says many people sacrificed everything they had during the apartheid era to secure the rights of all South Africans to vote. Polling stations open nationwide at 7 in the morning and will close at 9. The President says people must make use of the opportunity given. Fellow South Africans, it is 25 years since we all won the right to vote. On Wednesday, the 8th of May, all South Africans will once again have an opportunity to decide their own destiny. The day has been declared a public holiday so as to allow all registered voters to go and vote for the party of their choice in national and provincial elections. In doing so, together we will be exercising the right that was won through decades of struggle and sacrifice. I'm therefore calling on all South Africans to go out and vote. Meanwhile, the Electoral Commission in South Africa has issued a warning that disrupting an election is a criminal offence. The IAC was briefing the media at the Results Operations Centre in the capital Pretoria on its readiness for Wednesday's election. It says special voting has enabled its iron-out teething challenges ahead of the big day. CEO Sai Mamabulu says indications are that it went well with the two days of special voting. He has again warned against people not to not rather disrupt these elections.
citizens are reminded that any disruption to elections constitutes a criminal offence. And our view is that enough protests have been had, people's issues have been had, now is the opportunity for the voter to express themselves. So tomorrow is about the voters, tomorrow is about people who are going to be making their political choices and the necessary space for that must be created by everyone, including community leaders who are leading community protests. The African Union and the United Nations say they are supporting a civilian-led transitional government in Sudan following last month's overthrow of President Omar al-Bashir. AU Commission Chairperson Musa Faki Mohamed told reporters after meeting on Monday with UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres that there is no question of sustaining the military council that assumed power after al-Bashir's ouster. The AU initially gave the military 15 days to hand over power but extended the the deadline to 60 days, Mohammed said talks are still underway. Forces loyal to Eastern Commander Khalifa Haftar have shot down a Tripoli government warplane south of the Libyan capital. The Libyan National Army Media Unit released pictures of what it said was the pilot with blood on his face receiving medical treatment while seated on a chair. The Eastern-based LNA led by Haftar began an offensive against Tripoli in early April, but its advance has been blocked by forces loyal to Tripoli on the city's southern outskirts. The escalation is a back for efforts by the United Nations and Western states to end the chaos and political division in Libya. Lastly, opposition politicians and former governor in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Moise Katumbi, has announced his date of return to the country after three years of exile. He says he will be back in the DRC on May 20 in the capital city of Katanga province, Lumumbashi. Katumbi granted an interview to media houses addressing a wide range of issues involving the current political arrangement and his future. He had set out to contest in the December 2018 presidential elections, but was disqualified by the court on the basis of holding dual citizenship. The last time he attempted to return home, Katumbi was barred from landing in Lubumbashi by aviation authorities. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilinsi This is Africa Digest. Starting off in South Africa right now, where the Independent Electoral Commission says there have not been any major problems reported with regards to special votes. Now, just over 75,000 applications for special votes were approved by the Commission. This includes the applications, uh, this includes home visits and special voting at a registered voting station. IEC Chief Electoral Officer Simon Babolo briefed the media uh, at the National Results Operations Centre in Pretoria. Here he is elaborating. We do not as yet have final figures for special votes cast over the past two days, but indications are that this has proceeded well throughout the country. We are, however, confident that all special votes will be completed today. We have also received special votes from 113 
of the 121 foreign missions which were cast by voters outside of the Republic on the 27th of April. The eight outstanding batches of special votes are from the following countries, Algiers in Algeria, Brussels, Belgium, Shanghai, China, Lumbumbashi, DRC, Asmara in Eritrea, Tokyo, Japan, Sao Tome and Principe, uh, Caracas, Venezuela. All these are now en route and we hope to receive them imminently. The special votes cast overseas will be counted at the National Office of the IEC on Thursday morning in front of party agents. The Electoral Commission calls on every South African citizen to celebrate our 25th anniversary of democracy by ensuring tomorrow's election take place in the spirit of 1994. Let voting continue peacefully, calmly, and without disruption. And let us once again show the world that South Africa remains a shining light of democracy in action. The campaigning has now been done. It is now the turn of voters to have their say. That South Africa remains a shining light of democracy. That was the IEC Chief Electoral Officer, Saima Mabolo, speaking at the media briefing at the National Results Operations Centre in Pretoria. In a matter of hours, millions of South Africans will be making their way to voting stations across the country. These are the sixth democratic elections since 1994. South Africa remains one of the most unequal countries in the world and is held back by corruption and crime. The African National Congress, while embattled, uh, looks likely to retain its throne and national governance. However, recent voter surveys show that the 2019 general election may be the ANC's most daunting test of confidence in 25 years. While internal issues form part of the ANC's uneasiness, uh, an upswell in support for opposition parties, in particular the Economic Freedom Fighters, otherwise known as the EFF, has managed to chip away at the ANC's support base by intensifying a revolutionary rhetoric which appeals to the demands of populism. To help us analyze the situation, Channel Africa spoke to Professor Cheryl Africa, an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of the Western Cape, Professor Sean Gossel, an associate professor from the Graduate School of Business at the University of Cape Town, and Dr. Theo Fenter from the University of the Northwest. Whether we are dissatisfied, and if we, we choose to not vote, which is our prerogative, um, or to spoil the, the ballot, you know, at the end of it, it doesn't get taken into account. So, um, you know, the best is to, even if people are dissatisfied, um, they are cynical, it's to actually go and cast the ballot. Professor Kossel, what's your take? Professor Cheryl is saying there seems to be a lot of dissatisfaction, more than confidence. Uh, do you agree with her sentiments? Yes, I do. Um, elections basically are supposed to be a, an automatic conflict um, resolution mechanism built into the system. But in South Africa, it doesn't seem to be working very well. Um, there's effectively two um, symptoms of that. The first is that we do have um, a low voter turnout and a low voter registration, particularly among the youth, which is an indication of apathy and a disbelief in the system. Um, and the other one is the heightened number of service delivery protests during this election period, which indicates that people do not believe that the vote is an adequate measure. 
um, of changing society. And so both of these are basically ways of opting out of the electoral process. And it's once again an indication that we are a very, very immature democracy, still 25 years down the line, but we still are a very immature system. Dr. Theo? Yeah, well, I agree with my my colleagues in that um, two things are actually showing up um, in this election. The one is that with huge urbanization, our metros and our larger cities are now hosting the bulk of the population, Mm. and the rural areas are becoming smaller and smaller, and the rural population, of course, are the most vulnerable and, and the infrastructure, the communication structures, and all of those things are far more um, focused on, on, the, on the urban centers. And my impression is that where, while the urban vote in 2016, when we had local government elections, um, stayed away from the polls due to a reaction to President Zuma, that is changing in this election. I think... Uh, Ramaphosa is far more favorably regarded in the urban centers. But in our rural areas where I've got a lot of access to and where I'm operating in the Northwest and the Northern Cape and these places, the stay-away vote, the discussion that um, the political system is not going to solve any of our problems is a very prevalent narrative. And be that as it may, Dr. Fenter, I mean, surveys are suggesting that the ANC will still walk away with the majority. What do you think they're basing this on? I've got no doubt that the ANC will be the dominant party after the election. What the, the, the uncertainty is about is the number. Is it going to be 60% or is it going to be 50%? doesn't matter. But they will definitely... Uh, at the national level, still be the dominant force after the election. Provincially, things may look different. But um, I think it has to do with the the liberation, the democracy um, that started in 1994. So I think the ANC still trades on a very strong symbolism that is associated with the emergence of democracy in this country 25 years ago. And that still works. For the, for the ruling party. And that was Dr. Theo Fenter from the University of the Northwest, and you also heard from Professor Sean Gossel, an associate professor from the Graduate School of Business at the University of Cape Town, and Professor Sharal Africa, an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of the Western Cape. They were speaking to Ayanda Mkwanazi. 61% of South Africa's registered voters think tomorrow's elections will be free and fair, while 20% disagree and a further 19% do not know. This is according to test results by market research company Ipsos. South Africa will tomorrow hold its sixth democratic elections. On Monday, special votes were cast and continued today. In their latest report, Ipsos conducted fieldwork between the 22nd of March and April 17th, in which a total of 3,600 in-home face-to-face interviews were conducted. More on the findings from Mari Harris, uh, Senior Client Service Director at Ipsos. It's actually not three surveys. It is just different press releases focusing on the same study. But the study is so rich and there's so much in the study that we thought we'd rather bring out different press releases to look at it. First of all, the one question was, 
on whether people think elections are free and fair in South Africa. And um, a majority of 61% think that elections are free and fair. What is very interesting about this um, particular study or particular question is that um, those voters living in the Western Cape are the most complimentary. 66% of them say that elections in South Africa are free and fair. They followed by Gauteng, Limpopo and the Eastern Cape. What is interesting is that it is the two most contested provinces in the country, namely Western Cape and Gauteng, and then also two of the most rural provinces, Limpopo and the Eastern Cape, that are topping the list of provinces that think that elections are free and fair. And then if we look at one of the other questions, it was about how many points out of 10 people would give different political leaders. And if we look at this particular question, uh, we can see clearly that President Ramaphosa tops the list. He uh, currently gets a point of 6.5 out of 10 on this scale. If we look at the leaders of the other two biggest parties, namely Musi Maimani and Julius Malema, Maimani get a score of 3.5 out of 10 and Malema a score of 3.4 out of 10. So they are lagging a bit behind when it comes to leadership and appreciation of leadership. And just as a point about uh, political leadership, it doesn't really help if you're a political leader and you're only popular in your own party. Um, to be a leader on a national level, you really need to appeal to people from all walks of life and to a national basis. Then if we look at the third issue, it was about uh, opinions about three biggest political parties. And here if I can give you the bird's eye view, the ANC supporters feel quite strongly that capture is being addressed by the ANC, but they do think that corruption in South Africa will probably be with us for still some time. I think that's explainable if we think about the high publicity we get from uh, institutions like the Zander Commission and all the revelations done. And on the other hand, the issue of corruption is very, very difficult to root out, especially um, if you think about all the patronage and lines of patronage and issues um, of patronage in different areas. So not so easy to fix. And then 55%, um, so just over half of South Africans think that the DA talks a lot, but they do very little for people. But on the other hand, they do feel that the DA has managed the Western Cape, Swanee and Johannesburg well. When it comes to the EFF, most people feel that the EFF is having a negative effect on Parliament. However, the EFF supporters do not agree with us. They feel quite strongly that the EFF can very much do it as they please in Parliament. So those were the three latest releases that they put out. So how exactly are these surveys conducted and how do you ensure that they are representative of South Africa's demographics? Well, uh, the studies are done face-to-face in the homes and in the home languages of respondents. We do um, segmentation per province before um, starting the survey. Then within every province, we look at different forms of settlement, whether it's a metro area, um, 
town or rural area and different sample points are allocated to these different types of settlements based on the numbers of people who live in those areas. The points are identified at random on a map. Interviews go to these areas, specifically the area marked on their maps, and then in the vicinity of that point, they conduct six interviews, three with males, three with females. There are very, very specific instructions how to go about it. They need to start in a certain way, skip a few houses, list all the houses on a particular plot, um, choose one of them randomly according to the instructions they have, then list all the adults in the household, and again, choose one randomly according to the instructions they have. A big reason for this is that we don't want interviewers to choose people that look friendly or that approach anybody that are on the street, but we need this rigorous process to make sure that the interviews that we conduct in the end are representative of the country as a whole. And that was Marie Harris, Senior Client Services Director at Ipsos, talking to Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlangu. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. 1721 Central African Time. You are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with myself, Samora Magesi, and right now, we jump on over to Venezuela, where the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, whose most recent call for a military uprising failed to oust de- de- disputed leader Nicolas Maduro from power. He says he is considering asking the United States to intervene in the embattled South American country. At least four people were killed and more than 200 wounded in Venezuela during two days of massive demonstrations aimed at forcing Maduro to step down. But Maduro has since remained defiant and last Friday he appeared flanked by soldiers at an army base calling on the armed forces to defeat what he called coup plotters. Guaido argues that Maduro's 2018 re-election was illegitimate. For more on how the standoff can be resolved, Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munzerele spoke to Vanessa Dugarte, an expert on Venezuelan politics. To bring back stability, that's, that's quite a, a difficult question. There hasn't been stability in, in Venezuela for, for the last, I would say, three or four years from, from a people's point of view in terms of, uh, in terms of food, in terms of just um, jobs. But I think the only solution will be for either either of them to give up, be it Juan Guaido or Nicolás Maduro. And uh, personally, I believe that Maduro has had his chance. It hasn't worked. And um, his strategy, the way that he's governing, the way that he's, or the direction that he's taking the government, uh, or the direction that, yeah, the direction that he's, he's bringing in is not working, specifically with all the resources that Venezuela has, economically, the oil industry, all of that. It just hasn't worked. It's it brought the, the country to its knees. And um, 
it's a sad situation. Juan Guaido has said he is considering asking the United States to launch a military intervention in the country. What would be the repercussions of the U.S. intervention, do you think? At this point, uh, to be honest, uh, Venezuelan people, including myself, uh, we are desperate for anyone or anything to intervene in this in this mess we're in. It has been going on for so long. People are suffering so much that we are ready for anything to happen to, to happen that changes this entire situation. However, um, with regards to the repercussions of the United States mingling or, or maybe launching a military intervention, uh, we all know that they will be very high. Uh, the repercussions that will be USA. They, they won't do anything unless there's something that they can gain or there's something that they can benefit from. And we know that in the case of Venezuela, it will be the oil. According to the 2018 statistics, Venezuela is the is, is ranked the first country in the world with the most oil reserves. So it's right across the United States. It's very close. I mean, it's it's right there at the at the doorstep. Now Maduro appeared last Friday, flanked by soldiers at an army base in Caracas, uh, calling on the armed forces to defeat what he calls uh, the coup plotters. Is this an indication, perhaps, uh, that Maduro still has popular support at the moment, or is his support waning by the day? Well. At the moment, Maduro is only surrounded by very few people he trusts. Um, before, and if you could look at maybe four years ago, five years ago, his support or, or his popular support were the people. He appeared, he would walk down the streets, he would go to the to the neighborhoods and he would talk to the people, he would he was surrounded by people. But now, if you see that, that picture that you're talking about, that, that last Friday, it's the only way he appears now. He's surrounded by army, surrounded by military people. So um, it's very interesting that that it somehow he's just trying to show his power, trying to show that you know that I've got power. However, is not the popular support. The very people that got him elected do not want him anymore. They don't want to be around him anymore. So his his support is definitely winding down. Now let's talk about uh, the Russia factor in uh, this situation for a moment. Uh, Russia has had a deep military cooperation with Venezuela for quite some time, including supplying weapons to the country. It has now come out and accused uh, the United States of um, a regime change. How important is the Russian factor in terms of keeping Maduro in power? It's very important. It's very important because uh, this support that that he had before from all the countries surrounding like let's say Ecuador um, and Nicaragua and then Bolivia like South American support and, and, and even Cuba it's not there anymore it's not a hundred percent support that he's receiving so now uh, having Russia and even China uh, supporting Maduro it's, 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 it's a huge um, it means a lot because then that means that the standoff will be between United States and Russia instead of just uh, being Venezuela alone. And that was Vanessa de Dugarte, an expert on Venezuelan politics, talking to Kumbelo Monzelele. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa. Pambi.
My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa. Miss out the 3rd Annual Africa Shared Value Summit taking place from the 23rd to the 24th of May 2019 in Nairobi, Kenya. Thought leaders and business changemakers from across Africa will share insights and case studies showing how shared value can transform your business and create the Africa we want. Book your ticket at africasharedvaluesummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will broadcast live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss out on the broadcast on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or tune in to DSTV Channel 802 to be part of the conversation. Channel Africa, African Perspective. 19, 20, 17, 29 Central African time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so on our various platforms. You can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. And you can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Tomorrow is a very important day for South Africans where we are all heading to the polls to choose who is going to be our democratic leader uh, of the government. And I do hope that you are going to be going out in your numbers to make sure that you put your X uh, uh, next to whoever you think is going to be appropriate. But right now, the time is 17.30 Central African time. It's time for your news headlines. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa urges all South Africans to exercise their democratic rights and vote in Wednesday's election. Forces loyal to Eastern Commander Khalifa Haftar have shot down a Tripoli government warplane south of the Libyan capital and two suspects of the murder of two UN experts investigating mass killings in the Democratic Republic of Congo have fled prison. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelinzinzi. Today is World Asthma Day, a day dedicated to raising awareness of the condition. It is thought that as many as 300 million people suffer some form of asthma in the world. This chronic disease, especially when it is undiagnosed and untreated, can be deadly. Despite this, many people have asthma without knowing it. To discuss this further, here's Dr. Omolemo Kitchen, chairperson at the National Asthma Education Program and pulmonologist in private practice in South Africa. Well, the statistics are actually not very nice looking. South Africa, in terms of the prevalence of asthma on how common asthma is, is ranked 25th in the world. But what's even more devastating is that with regards to asthma deaths, we are ranked 4th in the world. So we are not doing great in terms of asthma care and asthma control. 
in our country. Doctor, for people who are none the wiser, you know, let's talk about the commonality of this uh, condition and the causes around it and who's most at risk. Okay. Asthma is a chronic condition, which means you live with the disease. A lot of problems that we have with asthmatics is that they think it can be cured. So asthma cannot be cured. The beauty about it is that you don't have to die from asthma. You can control it, you can live a good quality life as long as you take your medication. So the common thing that will make you suspect you've got asthma is if you've got coughing that doesn't get better. Obviously, TB is one of the things that can give you coughing that doesn't get better, but asthma is a common one. Wheezing, tightness of chest, and especially the coughing is worse at night. That is because as you breathe, the breathing pipes or your airways get closed a little bit and the air cannot go in and out freely because the airway is full of secretions like mucus that's blocking the pipes, the breathing pipes. The common things that may trigger asthma, usually asthma runs in families. So if you've got a father or a child with asthma, like you said, asthma, but there are other triggers that make asthma worse, like when you have a flu can make your asthma worse. Some people don't know they have asthma until they have a flu. Allergies can do that. And one of the things that is very preventable is smoking. So environmental tobacco smoke is one of the common hazards, or I can call it a hazard, that actually can precipitate the symptoms of asthma. Now, Doc, I mean, you've already mentioned that there is really no need for people to be dying from asthma. What they should be doing is taking their medication. But we have seen many South Africans are dying from this condition. Why is this the case? I mean, I know that medication is readily available at state facilities for treatment and management. So it is like that because people do not want to hear the diagnosis of asthma. So when, and I see that in practice, when patients come and see me and I tell them, your child has got asthma, and then I say, you're also wheezing, you're likely to be having asthma. And it is actually not necessary, and that's why the World GINA Global Initiative for Asthma and the Forum of International Respiratory Societies and our organization, National Asthma Education Program, have come up with this Stop for Asthma because it is very easy to stop dying from this. If you have symptoms, as stands for symptom evaluation, you can go to your doctor or the clinic and they can assess you, test response to therapy. You can give you treatment. If you get better from inhaled steroids, you've got asthma. Then you can observe and see if you're getting well. And you can, that's the O, and the P's proceed to adjust treatment. If the treatment is not, you can increase or decrease treatment depending on your response. So we've been saying we can control asthma, but this year we're saying stop for asthma. Let's do evaluation of the symptoms. Go to the healthcare center, get yourself assessed, get yourself tested, get yourself on therapy. You can start therapy, you can stop therapy, but you must not do it yourself. Mm. Let the healthcare professional do that. You can observe if you, if you get better, and then you can adjust treatment and you can be controlled on the lowest dose of inhaled steroids and live a good quality life. Mm. Doc, I can tell you, definitely, I'm learning quite a lot from this. Now, for people who, like me, you know, will at some point in their life encounter someone who is having an attack, I mean, it's quite a scary thing when you see somebody trying to gasp for air and may not necessarily have their pump close to them. Can you give a sort of a tips on what one should do, you know, as the patient during the attack and, of course, somebody who may be around that person, a loved one who would want to assist accordingly? 
So the simple answer to that is take that person mm. and rush them to the nearest healthcare center. Mm, because mm. for that, then they can give oxygen and they can give a nebulization. I don't like people using nebulization at home because mm. it's very difficult mm-hmm. to assess whether you get it better or not. It's better that the healthcare professional, be it a nurse, be it a doctor, be it a pulmonologist, be it a physician, to assess that. But I think what's more important is to start seeing that things are going to get worse. Don't wait for them to get worse. When somebody talks and they cannot complete sentences, it's one of the very hard symptoms to say, you know what, this person cannot even complete a sentence. It means he's struggling for A. So rather do that at that point in time. When somebody's wheezing, go. When somebody is starting to becoming weak, and children will tell you quicker because they stop eating mm. and they cry incessantly because they're struggling with air. Sure. Adults will say, I'm okay, but they're actually not okay. How is it that we can improve, you know, the treatment adherence in the country and just acceptance of the condition? If I have to choose one clinic you used to have, for simple reason, I take my medication in the morning, I take my medication in the evening. Nobody has to know. Secondly, you can get better quickly. And this is where we get problems because people think, I'm okay, I'm no longer with you, so I'm cured. So you have to let the doctor or the nurse or the sister at the healthcare facility decide how well controlled you are. And that way, people must just really stop stopping the medication halfway through because they feel they're better. And that was the chairperson of the National Asthma Education Program and pulmonologist in private practice in South Africa talking to Zikona Miso. Globally, 5.8 billion people are at risk of encountering a venomous snake. In a bid to save lives and reducing morbidity and disabilities linked to snake bites, the World Health Organization has developed a global strategy to halve the number of snake bite-induced deaths and disabilities by the year 2030. The full strategy for the snake bite prevention will be launched at the World Health Assembly in Geneva, Switzerland later this month. For more on this issue, here's the World Health Organization's Dr. David Williams. We think at the moment our best estimate is that there are somewhere between 1.8 and 2.7 million cases where people are actually bitten by a venomous snake and become seriously ill. And of those cases, somewhere between 81,000 and 138,000 people die. But what's probably even more surprising is that up to 400,000 people are left permanently disabled, either physically or psychologically. So if we unpack those numbers a little bit, the burden of, of death is highest in South Asia. India alone has 46,000 deaths from snake bite every year. And by comparison, the whole of sub-Saharan Africa probably has only 20 to 32,000. Although, of course, our reporting systems for snakebite are not as good as they could be and getting accurate data is still very difficult. Dying of snakebite is what everyone sort of thinks about, but many people probably don't realise that you actually stand a greater chance of surviving a snakebite and ending up with some degree of permanent disability. And that could range from local scarring around the bite site where the tissue has turned necrotic and has had to be cut away, or it could progress to involving a whole limb, an arm or a leg that eventually needs to be amputated.
leaving that person very severely disabled. Now, Dr. Williams, is it easy to tell if a person will die from a snake bite or suffer from a certain disability instead? What determines the consequences of a snake bite? Okay, well, for most people, it's, it's impossible to tell what the consequences will be. I mean, you could be bitten by a black mamba, for example, in, in Iswatini, in the low veld, and apart from the initial sting of the bite, and it feels like just a couple of small pinpricks, there's no initial local pain. In fact, you could be bitten on the leg walking through long grass and not even realise until, you know, it's quite some time later when you start to feel ill and perhaps feel nausea and want to vomit or find that it's difficult to see clearly through your eyes and then you'll get worse quite rapidly. But that initial bite may not have, you know, you may not even know that it's happened. On the other hand, if you're bitten by a puff adder, a very large pugnacious snake with fangs that can be two or three centimetres long, it's a very traumatic event, extremely painful. The venom causes pain immediately and you will know that something's wrong. But as to what the consequences will be of either of those cases, it can vary quite enormously. People really need to understand that if you're bitten by a snake, it is a medical emergency. In some countries, there's still this preoccupation that snake bite is caused by supernatural forces, that it's, it's due to, you know, curses being placed on you by an enemy or, you know, some other sort of superstition. And the unfortunate thing with that is that a lot of people don't immediately seek out medical help. They'll go to traditional healers, they'll try herbal remedies, and by the time they realise that they're actually very, very sick, it's often too late to help them. The best thing anyone can do after a snake bite is actually get to a health centre or a hospital as fast as possible. And doctors there can do specific tests and examine a person and make a decision on how serious the case is likely to be and on what the best treatment is, is going to be for that particular person. It's very interesting. Earlier on, you mentioned that one would not even immediately realise that they've been bitten by a snake, right? Exactly. A snake that's called a crate, K-R-A-I-T, and it actually has a completely painless bite. It's a nocturnal snake. It goes into people's homes in the night and it bites them while they're sleeping and they don't even know it. So many times, you know, somebody in the family will just not wake up. They'll just die in their sleep as a result of being bitten by one of these snakes. Dr. Williams, now talk us through this global strategy that WHO has developed to reduce deaths and disabilities resulting from snake bites. WHO has come up with a really very progressive, I think, and distinctive strategy for approaching this problem. And the first thing that we've done is we want to focus on communities. You know, communities are where snake bites happen and communities are where decisions are made that can make all the difference between whether a person lives or dies because, you know, if you make the wrong healthcare-seeking decision, if you don't act quickly enough, then you, you determine the outcome. So the program has a big focus on community engagement and upon empowering communities to prevent snake bites, to avoid the sorts of behaviours in their day-to-day -day lives that put them at higher risk. Another thing, you know, simply wearing a pair of shoes that cover the foot and the ankle would prevent probably 50% of all snake bites. If we could encourage more people to 
to cover their feet with, with basic footwear as a form of protection from snake bite, from soil-borne helmets, from diseases like podoconiosis, then we can actually you know, cut back the, the prevalence of all of these things. So we want to work with communities at that level. We also want to work with communities on issues of, say, first aid and what the right types of first aid to apply after a snake bite would be. We want to work with them on the types of behaviour after the snake bite in terms of making the right decision to treat you know, with allopathic medicine by going to a health centre. And we want to work with first responders, the ambulance services, for example, um, that have to transport snake bite patients so that they arrive at a hospital alive and, and able to be you know, saved. And that was Dr. David William from the World Health Organization on the line from Geneva in Switzerland talking to Jane Rabotata. The time is 17.44 Central African time, just shy of 17.45. Let's cross on over to the money desk where Tracy Boomgaard is standing by to let us know what is happening with our money and how the elections could affect the economy. The Nigerian government has filed a three and a half billion US dollar damage claim against oil giants Eni and Shell over the controversial Malibu oil deal. The government has accused Eni, Shell, Malibu and others of fraud and or bribery, dishonest assistance and unlawful means of conspiracy. The new claim, dated April 8th, was filed against 14 defendants. At the centre of the Malibu scandal is the transfer of about $1.1 billion by oil multinational Shell and Eni through the Nigerian government to accounts controlled by former Nigerian oil minister Dan Etete. Kenya Airways is to resume flights to the coastal town of Malindi from the 10th of June. The airline's re-entry to this route will be a great boost to the town through a codeshare partnership with Alitalia Passengers from all over Italy will also be able to access the Kenya coast through a one-stop service via Nairobi. The strengthening of the Kenya Airways network continues to be a key focal point for Kenya Airways, and by resuming the route, the airline believes it will be supporting the tourism industry. The Volta Basin Authority is in discussions with development partners to secure $20 million to build and develop dams, irrigation projects and other infrastructure along one of the largest river systems in Africa, the Volta Basin. This was revealed at the 8th Ordinary Session of the Council of Ministers of the Volta Basin Authority, currently underway in Ghana. The partners include the World Bank, the Islamic Development Bank, Global Environmental Fund and Netherlands International Agency, among others. Lebohang Mabange has more. Ghana, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Benin, Mali and Togo established their VBA to explore and improve the economic potentials of the basin for the benefit of dwellers along the basin. Robert Deswasi, the executive director of VBA, says the project would also protect the water resource from depletion and contamination due to uncontrolled logging, mining activities and human settlements. Multinational retailer Steinhoff is expected to release its restated and audited financial reports for 2017. This will give investors an insight into how a year-long forensic probe 
Now PricewaterhouseCooper has altered the retailer's financial position. In December 2017, the group announced that the 2017-2018 results could not be relied on. Auditors flagged accounting irregularities in its books and its CEO, Marcus Eurster, abruptly stepped down. Results for 2018 are expected to be published on June 18th. The United States has accused China of backtracking on commitments and trade talks. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer says despite this, a deal on tariffs is still possible. Earlier, President Donald Trump warned that the U.S. would more than double tariffs on Chinese goods on Friday and introduce fresh tariffs. Sikhle Zuma has more. China has announced that its top trade official, Lu He, will be traveling to Washington this week for a further round of talks before the tariff kicks in. Earlier, IMF head Christine Lagarde warned that fresh trade tensions between the U.S. and China are a huge threat to the world economy. Lagarde's comments come after President Donald Trump threatened to impose new taxes on Chinese exports. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.07 Nigerian Naira, 10.61 Botswana Pula at 99.51 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.83 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.94 Brazilian Hale, 65.24 Russian Ruble, 69.32 Indian Rupee, 6.78 Chinese Yuan and at 14.47 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,282 and platinum at $879 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $71.13 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Seventeen forty-nine Central African time. Let's cross on over to the sports desk. Here's Neto Chimani with your latest sport. Thank you, Samora, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with rugby news. After missing out on hosting Rugby World Cup 2023 in controversial circumstances last year, South African rugby has decided to beat for the 2027 World Cup. South Africa was one of 11 countries to submit expressions of interest documents to World Rugby by their March 31 deadline. Argentina, Cayman Islands, France, Germany, India, Jamaica, Malaysia, Qatar, Scotland and Tunisia are the 10 other countries who have taken the first step towards the hosting of the global showpiece. South Africa have proposed Cape Town as the bid city for the event to be held in September-October October window. After an exhaustive and expensive Rugby World Cup 2023 bid process, SA Rugby has decided to tentatively try for a lesser bid but for a huge popular event. 
On to cricket news. South Africa's Proteus fast bowler Andre Chinorke has been ruled out of the World Cup due to a hand injury. The fast bowler fractured his right thumb while practicing in the nets and will need six to eight weeks to recover. It is a gutting moment for the 25-year-old Norke, who had forced his way into the 15-man squad despite playing just four ODIs. The Warriors paceman only recently recovered from a shoulder injury sustained against Sri Lanka back in March. South Africa's team manager Dr. Mohamed Musaji broke the news earlier today and also reveals that all-rounder Chris Morris has been drafted in as a replacement. Disappointing news is that one player has unfortunately been ruled out of the tournament due to a hand injury and will be replaced in the squad. Andrich Nokia sustained a fracture of his right thumb while practicing in Port Elizabeth yesterday. He immediately consulted a hand surgeon and underwent surgery to stabilize the finger joint. It's an unfortunate and freakish injury, especially because he made a successful recovery from the shoulder injury that he sustained during the Sri Lanka series. Andrik has had a few injury setbacks in the last year, but knowing his character, he will be motivated to come back stronger. He will be sidelined for up to eight weeks, and we wish him a speedy recovery. The selectors have called on Chris Morris to replace Andrich in the Cricket World Cup squad. On to tennis news. Tennis South Africa in association with Vision View Sports Radio will host the inaugural South Africa Spring Open at the Ellis Park Tennis present in Johannesburg from the 24th to the 29th of September. The Spring Open is an international tennis federation, ITF-sanctioned event that will showcase the best of South Africa's tennis aces, competing against both their continental and international counterparts. The tournament will comprise of both a wheelchair tennis ITF grade 2 tournament Tournament and an able-bodied ITF World Tennis Tour with winners pocketing 15,000 US dollars each for both men and women. CEO of Tennis South Africa Richard Tlava has more. Yeah, I think this, the Spring Open is very much a work in progress. So I think the focus for year one, 2019, is to establish the events and build credibility and build the brand of the Spring Open. I think what you'll see is the level of players rise over, over the years as, as this becomes established on, on the international circuit. So just to explain, in terms of a $15,000 event, this is very much an entry-level event into professional tennis. So it'll attract a lot of young up-and-coming stars, future stars will come who are making their first steps in terms of professional tennis. And hopefully over the years the prize money will increase and the quality of players will increase as well. So I think it's very much one to watch over the years. Hopefully in, in five years' time the Spring Open will be an iconic tennis brand, not just in South Africa but globally as well. And finally in football news... South African Premiership side title-chasing Mamelodi Sundowns have a great chance to lay one hand on the APSA Premiership trophy when they entertain Golden Arrows at Loftus Versfeld in Pretoria, the country's capital city, tonight, with Orlando Pirates dropping two points against Cape Town City in Saturday's 2 all draw. If Sundowns win their game in hand against Arrows, they will go two points clear with one match left to play. There is plenty of motivation for the visitors
Pelas as coach Steve Compella's team can move into the top eight with a victory, a goal that Abafana Best Tender have been pursuing in the final few weeks of the campaign. Sundowns come into the contest on the back of an exit from the CAF Champions League following a defeat to Wydad Casablanca in the semi-finals. Therefore, with PSL crown being the last chance of silverware in the 2018-2019 season, coach Pizomasimane will not be lacking enthusiasm. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, Amneto and ETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. All right. It's now 17.55 Central African time. Just shy of 17.56. It's time for us to wrap up this hour of Africa Digest. But be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time and we'll be bringing you more news from an African perspective. From myself, Samura Mangesi, producer Leanda Maume, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for lending us your ear yet again. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa one Taking us to the top of the hour is a song that's very fitting considering that we are going into the elections tomorrow. Uh, here is Brendam Dumbo with a song called Mtlaboet. We'll see you later.